0: Well, when you look at, for example, it, I mean, streaming has attracted zillions of dollars of capital. So you look at Spotify with a market cap of like $30 billion, and they've never made money. Um, you know, I got in trouble once at a conference, and I said, we made more. Somebody asked about Pandora. I said, we love those guys, but I made more money at Amos for breakfast today than they've made in 12 years. <laughs> Ben's President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody.
1: <laughs> I'd like to welcome uh, someone who I've just candidly admired my whole entire career. And just not myself, but I, I think the, uh, the whole industry uh, looks up to this man. Um, Jeff Smolian, the chairman, CEO and founder of uh, MS Communications. And Jeff, from the very get go of this podcast has been so supportive and gracious and was one of the very first people to agree to do it. And then we just haven't been able to put it together because I wanted to be there in person, um, A, because he means that much to me, and just to be able to spend time with him like that would be uh, incredible. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, because of COVID-19, it just wasn't possible, and so we decided to do this uh, uh, via o- online, and um, uh, he is uh, joining us right now from uh, his corporate offices in Indianapolis. Jeff, welcome to the show. Got you, thanks. It's
0: a pleasure to be here. Sorry it's taken us so long, but... Uh... The pandemic has changed a lot of things. Th-
1: that that it has, and we'll get into that uh, in a second. Let me just give, for those of you who don't know Jeff, and I find it hard to believe that uh, someone in this industry does not, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background on him and his bio. Uh, first of all, he's uh, an owner of, or has owned, uh, legendary stations, Power 106, uh, The Fan, Hot 97, BLS. Uh, he Owned, no joke. Uh, the Seattle Mariners at at one point. He's the former director of the NAB, and he was named by the White House to head up a U.S. delegation that helped negotiate a landmark agreement between Israel and the Palestine uh, Liberation Organization. Um, which I can't wait to learn more about because that, uh, um, <laughs> talking about a whole other level of importance to be assigned by the White House to take on a project like that and in uh, broker peace. I'm um, excited. Hear about it. He's also won uh, a myriad of awards, and I've got—I have to imagine—in Indianapolis, there's a trophy case uh, that is at least a hundred yards long. Uh, he was a giant of broadcasting by the Library of American Broadcasting, an inductee in the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. Uh, The Broadcasters Foundation honored him with a Golden Mike Award, uh, and in 2017, he received the Lowry Mays Excellence in Broadcasting Award. MS was also named on Fortune Magazine's 100 Best Companies to Work For, Um, and I got a story about that also, um, but just uh, the employees that have worked for you over the years uh, have said such wonderful things about you, and probably out of all your awards, I look at that one as being uh, incredible and just a a testament to how you, uh, you run your company thanks thanks chachi. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and uh, in, in growing
0: up you know I grew up here in a in a a family of um, my parents and three kids fairly normal you know middle class maybe a little upper middle class existence in a um, near in suburb of indianapolis um, it, you know family was is very close my parents have both passed away now but Uh, My sister and brother and I are all very close, uh, a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins. And, um, you know, I think it was I look back, it was a fairly normal. I mean, we all look at our families and say we have the only dysfunctional family in the world. But as I really look compared to everybody else, it was a fairly normal existence Um, and grew up here and then went. To USC for college and law school, and then my dad talked me into coming back. I always, I'm one of those strange people. I had this discussion with my now 16 year old daughter about I was I was rare. I knew what I wanted to do when I was a kid, and I think it's it's true of a lot of friends in my era. They sort of grew up with radio, listening to transistor radios under their pillow, listening to rock and roll and ball games, and uh, just sort of fell in love with the industry, and it was always what I wanted to do. Was this something your were your parents pretty
1: supportive of that or were they yeah. wanting to, to go on and do other things?
0: My dad always wanted me to be a lawyer. Um, you know, and it was funny when I was going to getting out of college, I was going to go up to Stanford to get a master's in telecom Wow! So go, go to law school, get a law degree. Um, and I kind of laugh, you know, in those days it was like, you know, what he really went to get an MBA. You no, know, it was business was like, looked at differently. I laugh, said so it, it. If I had actually got an MBA, um, I probably would have understood the concept of risk and never started a company. Um, <laughs> um, um, but, I, but I got a lot. Law, law, somebody said, go get a law degree. If you want to be an entrepreneur, uh, it'll teach you how to understand how the world works. Um, and you'll have more credibility wanting to be an entrepreneur when you're a lawyer than when you're having you know, a master's in telecom. And I did it. I wrote my law review article on the Federal Communications Commission, the infamous Clear Channel Doctrine. Um, and you know, I, I think it was great training. I, I would recommend it to anybody. I have kidded. I have been on inactive status in the state bar of Indiana for probably forty years. And I always kid if I actually had to practice law, they would they would just bar me on the spot. They would just <laughs> bar me. you're now you now have, have gone into active status and now we're going to kick you out of the bar because you're incompetent but but I never practice, but I loved I, I love the training
1: and yeah it's a, a great foundation and probably a, some remarkable advice that your father gave you to go and do that and yeah,
0: uh, i think he, he really wanted me i had a, a couple of really flattering offers from some big law firms and he he, he thought i was crazy but it was it was you know you got to do what you love
1: uh, so he wanted you to go on. He obviously would have rather you, at least at that time, I'm sure he's incredibly proud now or looking down incredibly proud, but he probably would have preferred you to go on and work at a, at a big firm.
0: Yeah. He, I think, you know, he, he, he I know thought I was nuts for a while, although, <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, he, he was very proud. We, we were very close.
1: So you came out here to LA and went to USC and you graduated at the top of your class.
0: Um, and Not quite the, the top of my class. I was my, my dad was one of those people who used to tease me. And so when I graduated, I think I had like a three, three or something. He said, you know, you could have been five beta kappa. No, I wasn't. And in my law school class, I think I finished in the top 20, 25%. He said, you know, order the coif is top 10%. You could have done that. I was, I was, I was, and I, I, it's funny. They interviewed me for a retrospective on, on uh, law school uh, and they did a history of the, the USC law school. And I said, what's your one regret? I said, my one regret is that I went to seven years of college and law school. And my only goal was to learn as little as possible. <laughs> I think I, you know, turned on a switch when I was 25 or so. And, I went from the least disciplined human being in the world to the most disciplined. I never I've always got to be doing something all the time. And I, I, have, a, a, I have two grown kids and my 16 year old. And uh, I always tell her, I think you have more discipline than me. And I'm thrilled. Uh, that's my one regret. I was a I was a pretty good test taker. But, um, I, you know, I, it kills me that I spent seven years at a great university and didn't learn as much as I should have. Did you enjoy
1: though the the social aspect? What were some of the extracurricular activities that you would do?
0: I was I was five a cap of social stuff. I will, okay. I, will I love that. And that
1: <laughs> Good. Well, you got a lot out of college. I think a lot of people look back and go, you know, I didn't have enough fun.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I, that wasn't my problem. <laughs> Under no circumstances was was that my problem in college or law school.
1: Oh, that's that's great. So you moved back after uh, after school, uh, pass, turn down a couple jobs at law firms, and then end up back uh, in Indianapolis, your right. hometown. And how did radio? How did it first start? Uh, in
0: I I had started looking to buy small stations when I got out of school, and my dad, who you know, said, "Look, he, he, my dad was had been in the, the his." father's business and his father-in-law's business, and then had had gone into motels and some apartments and some real estate. And he wanted me to come back. And he had a cousin who had a very small, bad radio station that was sort of floundering. And he said, I'll, he told the cousin, look, if I can convince Jeff to come back and run it for you, uh, I'll invest in it. And he did. Uh, And I resisted for a long time because I thought the station was lousy which it was, uh, <laughs> um, was this, uh, NTS, WNTS? Yes. NTS. Uh, and, uh, and we did it. And I've always said, you do your best work in, in the worst situations. So whether, whenever you have an impossible business project, you know, there's an old Warren Buffett line, show me great people and an impossible project. And two years later, I'll show you worn out great people and a project that's still impossible. Um, <laughs> but we did it and we loved it. Um, the only regret, uh, th- we had our midday guy was David Letterman. I don't know whatever happened to Dave.
1: Yeah. He, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Cause he, there was a book I read recently about Letterman and, uh, you were actually quoted in the book.
0: And so was Letterman already working at the station when no, you, no, no. no we, we, it was a, it was a daytime country station. We switched it to news, talk and sports NTS. Uh, and my brother, who said, you got to hire Letterman, we were looking for talk. We had news in the morning and we had sports in the afternoon. And he said, "You, you and I knew of Dave. Um, Dave was doing the weekend weather on, on the local, uh, the Channel 13, which I think was NABC. Now it's NBC. Uh, and, uh, you know, he said, you got to watch Letterman. And I watched him. And Letterman was, you know, it's just Letterman. And Even doing it? The weather is, oh, you know, is. Letterman would say it's 48 in Muncie, it's 48 in Kokomo. They'll play off that tie next week. Is <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great one. he says, you know, we've got I mean, gale force winds and and we've got threats of tornadoes, but don't worry about that because there's a line of ICBMs headed, you know, <laughs> for Road right now. So don't worry about the bad weather. I mean, he uh-huh. was hilarious, and so we hired him, and uh, and Dave was Dave. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, he would do, I'll never forget my favorite moment, least favorite moment. Actually, I came back from lunch one day and then the, the problem with talk radio, as you know, is you reach a geriatric set. So he got a 25 year old guy who is the sensibilities of 25 year olds like me and, and the other people there. And most of your listeners are 60 plus and they're very conservative. And I'll never forget. I came back to lunch one day, and, and the guy said, "You got a communist working for you. That guy's a communist, and I want him fired."
1: Oh my God, are you serious?
0: Oh yeah, that's serious. <laughs> what do you do? He said, "Well, I called in and said, I think you know the communists are in Carmel, uh, you know, and, and we got to get rid of the communist. But Carmel's a big suburb of Indianapolis, and oh him, I think you got to, I think you got to give the communists Carmel because the schools are." you know, overcrowded and, <laughs> and, uh, and parking <laughs> he could give the, car, com- you know, the, the communist caramel and hold a line at Nora, which is another, <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, you know, and, 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 and I mean, that was Dave. I mean, David did stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, every day was a new adventure and you had a cult of 25, 30 year olds who just thought it was the greatest radio ever. But most of the audience thought, who is this guy? He did, David couldn't talk about current affairs. I mean, he, w- he knew a little bit. But, you know, you had most guys on talk radio or policy wonks, and David wasn't. And brilliant. The biggest regret I had, David, when he took the job, said, I'm going to go to California and try to make it within a year. And it was, sure enough, a year later, he went. He actually, to help him, to help fund him, we paid for reports that he did from the West Coast. No uh, kidding. Yeah, and I still remember he, he covered the Rose Parade, and he said they ran out of roses, so this year they the, the, they did it all in pork rinds and the stunts <laughs> on <out of> Colorado <laughs> Avenue. And I mean, it was just, it was just brilliant stuff. The only regret I have is that the guy who replaced him doing talk. Uh, Is a guy named Rick Cummings. Um, Oh
1: man, that was a terrible mistake. Terrible
0: (laughs) mistake. I I have regretted that mistake uh, almost uh, 45 years. I've regretted that mistake. Uh, But Cummings was like an intern. Uh, He was there, I think he was fired at WFMS and for some. Who knows? And we ended up, he ended up doing, um, you know, replacing Letterman and he did production. And we did a Saturday sports talk show, which uh, we, we had more fun with. And we just became very close friends. And I told him the station, when this is long before your time, but the station switched to NBC's all news network because it was just, you know, it was, you're basically piping in all news and that NBC pulled a plug on that. And we knew it wasn't going to, you know, be competitive. Rick had left by then and uh, gone to Hartford, and um, um, we ultimately made it religion where it stayed. Um, I, I went off to found Emmis and uh, um, actually bought a, a second religious station, but uh, it was a, it was a great experience. I so mean, that
1: was the the stepping stone to EmmaS. And before I, I get there. Yeah. And I was going to bring this up a little bit later, but now that we're talking about uh, Letterman and, and Rick, who in all seriousness is just an, an amazing talent uh, in his yeah. own right, and I think a, a programming genius. But the talent that has been born out of Emmis is remarkable. Uh, obviously, Letterman, Big Boy, yeah. Ebro, Woody, uh, Mike Francesa. I mean, it's incredible. What is your... How do you do that? How do you uncover, uh, and most of these talent, including Letterman, were kind of, no I don't want to say nowhere, but certainly in the infancy of their careers.
0: Well, I, I wanted to be, you know, take a lot more shots at Cummings, um, <laughs> but I, I won't. Uh, I, I should tell you that I, I told them someday I'm going to start my company and you're going to be the first person I hire. Uh, and he always joked and said, if I wasn't, you know, un- unemployable, I never would have taken the job with you. But <laughs> it here, so it, and without being flippant, the answer is Rick. I mean, Rick has uh, a better ab- ability to understand, you know, people and talent and how to motivate people and work with people. Uh, you know, obviously we're inseparable. We've been together all these years and, uh, you know, we will be together. You know, forever. Um, he's, you know, I would trust him with anything, and we're, we're, you know, and and I also believe there's no one who's understood programming uh, and content in America like Rick. So that, now I'm not going to say anything nice about him for the rest. Of <laughs> there's, I, I can tell.
1: Um, you guys love each other like brothers, and yeah. there is, uh, it's an incredible relationship that you have. It's and- true. I am enamored at your ability to find, uh, to find and groom talent and create a, help them grow into superstars um, and also brands. You've, you've yep. done that time and time again, and I'll get into some of those in, in a minute, but it's just something that is so incredibly difficult to do. And you guys have done it multiple times. Doing it once, you can say you've caught lightning in a bottle, but to do it time and time again in, in different cities
0: is phenomenal. I think it's it's the culture, it's the people, it's how we treat each other, how we treat people. Uh, I'm very proud of it. I think you know there's a lot of a lot of things you look at in your life and you say, well, I wish it had been this or that, but I'm very proud of how we've we've treated people over the years. And uh, and I and I'm, i I think when you look back at your life, you know, you don't look at uh, this high or this low or whatever. You look at you know it's sort of uh, the journey that you've had, and I, I'm very pleased and proud of the journey we've
1: had. When you founded emmis you based it on the Hebrew word for truth, right. which I find very fascinating. And this is really early on in your career. You're what, 26, 27 maybe at this time? Uh, I think it was 30 when we started.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. 30, yeah, when the company
1: started. Were these values and very nature of the name of the company, I think is uh, an incredible value or ethic. Um, was this something that was instilled at an early age, by your parents? Yeah,
0: I think so. Uh, I mean, I know so. Um, you know, I think there's certain values that you have, and uh, how you treat people, and how you view the world, and what your obligations are to your your family, and your community, and society at large. And I think those are core values. And you know, I had a law professor who said we all live by an eight by eight, and some people live for love or money or power or sex or glory or whatever, and you sort of figure out what's important to you and. Uh, and I've certainly, there's no question that family and this company have been the things that have motivated me. And, you know, I, I doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, you know, I should have sold the company a long time ago, but it's, it's worked out well and I'm proud of it. I,
1: I find it, uh, admirable and I I look up to you guys, um, I can't express how much tell me a little bit. Now you at NTS is your stepping stone and now you, you form uh MS and you build a, a company that goes on to be publicly traded and incredibly successful. What's your first move? What are you, it, What what's it like being a 30-year-old Jeff with the brand new company?
0: Well, it was my dream. It took us, uh, we, we signed an agreement to buy uh, a Class B FM in Shelbyville. Now, if you remember, there's, every state's either B or C, Indiana's B, which means you can have 50,000 watts at 500 feet. It was under allocated. We used to joke that the AM, got all the the major league, little league games, and the FM got the minor league, little league games. (laughs) Or or the the Shelbyville High School team was on the AM, and the junior varsity game, or the Rushville High School game, which is a smaller town, was on the FM. But they weren't utilizing, and I went to them. We actually looked at Station Greenfield first that Cecil Heftel ended up buying, uh, which is now WZPL. in couldn't get that done. And we made a deal with the people in Shelbyville who were wonderful. And I had some original investors, um, and we bought it and it took us two years to get the tower built for all sorts of crazy things we went through. Um, and we launched it on July 4th, 1981. Um, I called Cummings in, in, when we were getting ready to start, uh, and he was working in New Orleans and he came up, uh, he wasn't, I, I refer to him as the first, Employee it was really the second employee because our engineer, who was helping put the tower together, was our first. Um, but we started uh, it, with a radio station that was adult contemporary, and it just—it was a skyrocket. Um, WNTS, and we did everything. I mean, we were at the TV commercial and picked all the records, and you know, all the equipment, and hired the salespeople, and did the training, and it was just—you uh, know—it was a mom and pop thing, just a few of us, and uh, it, it took off. It was just, it was, and it was, you know, it was sort of, you know, your wildest dreams. We had a lot of those experiences in the first 10 years of the company. That's
1: fantastic.
0: Was there a lot of celebration? There was a lot of celebration. I can still remember the day we had, um, we we had our, our second rating book was a 10 share. And that was uh, first or second in the market. I think it was second. Oh my gosh. I think WIBC was still probably a 12 or something. But, but for the startup FM to go from a zero to a seven to a 10 was just unbelievable. Um, and I'll never forget, when we got the ratings. I don't know if you ever knew John Horton or Gary Rosnick. Rosie has been in the business a lot. Uh, He stayed with us, and then now has gone on to several other ventures. But they were—we had called an immediate staff meeting for a big party, and you know, everybody hardworking. And here comes Rosnick and Horton in their golf shorts. They had obviously been on the golf course, loafing off, goofing off. But uh, yeah, it was—it was was a lot of fun.
1: That's fantastic. Um, Yeah. So now you've got—you know—a lot of people would say. And I'm interested in where I'm going with this is that your entrepreneurial side, that you've been successful with the station and you're doing great. And that would be enough for a lot of people. But you've had this desire and this inner entrepreneurial spirit,
0: it sounds like, to you want more. And what drives that? Well, you know, I think we're all crazy in our own ways. I always just want to build a company. And people said, I knew you in the beginning. And you said, I do this and this and this. Absolutely not true. But it was just sort of like, let's just do what we want to do and see if we're good at it. And I think one of the things that I I learned early on, I think I had a horrible fear of failure when I was in my early 20s. And for some reason, I think I got over it. And so I've done things in my life which I knew were long shots, whether it was Next Radio or wireless TV or introducing the concept of revenue sharing in baseball that were kind of long shots. But it was sort of like, you know what, I, I love trying to do things that people say can't be done. Um, and so as far as the company, it was like, Hey, let's go on to the next thing. We bought WLOL and, uh, and that really, you know, that really took off, in, you know, not because of us, but, you know, we always said it was, it wasn't MS management with LOL. It was the threat of MS management because, uh, <laughs> it, it the station, and while we're waiting to close, the thing goes from a four share to a 10 share. And it was all Doyle, uh, wow. and, you know, I'll never forget Steve Crane, who, was one of my oldest, dearest friends, uh, came in, was practicing law in Chicago and he was bored. And he said, I want to come in when you start this thing. And he bought a little stock and he came in and so he was going to run the second station. So we sent him up to Minneapolis and after he's meeting with Doyle in the interim, while you're waiting the three or four months to close the deal, he called me one day and said, look, this guy's a lot better than me. We got to leave him. He's, you know, and so Doyle stayed with us and, uh, Um, you know, we were together for many, many years, which
1: is incredibly astute. We've seen in the very modern era that we're in right now that acquiring companies, a lot of times will go in and gut the existing infrastructure and not learn, at least in my estimation, learn the things that they probably should, the institutional knowledge about that company yep. before making changes. And that at 30
0: years old or 31, however old you were, was incredibly mature. Well, you know, I have another favorite saying is I've never met a human being who walks in in the morning and says, how do I screw my job up? I <laughs> do a bad job. So we started with the bias that most people are trying to do well. There are times when you got to make changes. But our, our thought was, number one, if, 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 you know, obviously there are times when you say, look, we, we see this business, we've got to make changes. But generally our bias is, let's see if we can, you know, if we can work with the people we find um, and, and have them run it. Another one of my favorite sayings is, a, I, and we even brought him to a manager's meeting once, once uh, there was a football coach named Bum Phillips who was a legendary coach of the Houston Oilers and Phillips, they asked him about leadership. And he said, he he said, Don Shula, he said, Don Shula can take his guys and beat your guys. And then he could take your guys and beat his guys. That's a leader. That's a great, great saying. Um, And I always used to use the bum Phillips story. And one year they said, we're getting bum Phillips to speak at our manager's meeting. And he was, he's passed away now, but he was delightful.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: But, um, but we've, you know, we have generally said, you know, that we would, you know, find the people we just bought another business and like the management team and said, look, hopefully we can add things. But, uh, we are it's also what we've said when we bought businesses, we said, look, our job is not to treat our new employees like we're a conquering army, um, you you walk in and you treat everybody with respect and you don't lord your ideas. You, you're you there to listen and learn and help. And I think that's worked pretty well for us over the years.
1: I think it's not only worked great for you over the years, I find it uh, so humane. I find it builds incredible loyalty. Um, I, I will tell a, a quick story, but when you uh, sold power a couple of years ago, I had had lunch uh, with one of the uh, on-air staff members who's still on air there. And uh, we were uh, talking about it, of course. And he told me that after selling the station, that you came to town and took everyone out, I believe to lunch or dinner. And at that event, you gave everyone a check. He didn't tell me the amount, but he told me that he was flabbergasted by how generous the amount was as a thank you for helping uh, build the radio station over the years. And I've never heard a story uh, like that uh, until he told it to me. And I was just shocked by it and want to say, man, that's impressive.
0: Well, we feel like, you know, our people got us there. I, I look at power and, you know, you can see, you know, what it was when we bought it and how high it got. And then it came most of the way back down. But but we had uh, people who really, you're only as good as your people. And, you know, uh, listen, I wish it could have been more, but it was a gesture that we said, thank you. You guys have, have, you know, done great things for us. So again, Chachi, you are who you are. Uh, Cummings and I uh, you you always say, look, doesn't make us good or bad. It's just who we are. Um, My late mother and I sort of had the same personality. And I said, you know, sometimes that doesn't make you you know because we look at it the, the same the problem the same way, it doesn't make us right or wrong, it's just you are who you are, and those are the things that you know make make me feel the way I, I want to live my life. You know?
1: so in the, the 80s, you start to now LOL, and then you, uh, ENS, um, uh, Keishi um power uh qht uh the uh which eventually became the fan uh you buy stations in in dc yeah. and by 87 you're now the largest privately owned radio broadcasting company in the us i mean that's unbelievable that was what in 7 years time 8 years time
0: 6 7 years yeah i mean it just was sort of we were really good at buying things and figuring out what would make them work uh and like i said we got some breaks no human being succeeds without getting lucky uh, Indianapolis went well, Minneapolis went well because of what Doyle did. Really. Um, we looked at Casey and said, boy, this is one of the great brands of all time, but it's absolutely got to be reinvented. I mean, you know, we, we had some, so much fun. if you remember sweet meat, the pig, uh, the yeah. man out of Casey with the joint in his mouth. And what we found is, you know, you know, heavy metal, you know, album rock, people loved it. But the business community said that pigs are reprobate. The, you know, the whole station's a renegade. So we, we we, streamlined the pig and we created a mascot where he we went to every hospital at every charity event. And we, I mean, we had so much. So we had, uh, Stuart Lane, who was with us, created the Perception Versus Reality, which I didn't know at the time. He actually stole from a Rolling Stone campaign, but I didn't know really? it. Really? <laughs> he would take a picture of a guy who looked like he had just blown up the federal building. And that was then. And now... He was a you know a, you know a district attorney or a woman who looked like she had you know been traveling with The Grateful Dead and now she was a a leading surgeon in St. Louis and it was then and now all these people and the constant was then they listened to Casey now they listened to Casey and it was just sort of um, and we we used to tick uh, tease Rick Bayless who was our our PD and say play palatable music don't play the the eleventh cut on the Stones album. Play play the first cut on the stuff. Occasionally, <laughs> <laughs> and you're a rock and roll fan, you still know the music. <laughs> and it took off. And power, we we was originally Magic 106, um, and uh, it, and we it was an AC station, and we said, well, you know, we're supposed to be good at AC, and we had a chance to hire Robert W. Morgan, um, and Robert W. was iconic to me because when I was going to school in Los Angeles, KHJ was, you know, everything. Um, and um, so you had Robert W. who was the morning man. We brought him back. We gave it a year and a half. And with all of our great marketing skills and programming skills, we took a station that I think had a two-one when we bought it. And I think it was a one-nine when we flipped the format. So it just didn't go anywhere. Um, and we had always talked about this hybrid rhythmic, you know, station. That would sort of mesh all of the the you know the um, assimilated Hispanics and young young African Americans and sort of hip white kids in the suburbs. And we thought about that in the beginning. We didn't do it, and then after a year and a half, we said, "Let's do it." And that became Power, and uh, you know, it just skyrocketed.
1: Yeah, and a, a cultural phenomenon. I mean, just yep. a, amazing yep. what you created with Power, and still to this day, a a, a tremendous brand and. Yep. You know, credit to Morello for—I uh, I, think—doing a pretty darn good job. Uh, after losing Big Boy, it still holds up incredibly well against real and beats it uh, on a regular basis. And yeah. uh, that goes to show you the power of—well, the power, <laughs> no pun intended—but the power of a brand yeah. and you've uh, what you created. Were you always? Your stations, um, and I've got a lot of respect for marketing and branding. Um, it's a lot of what we do, and I think you guys are such pioneers in that space. Um, was branding and marketing and the creative process always important to you as a CEO?
0: Absolutely. And and I think what broke my heart is we got past the sort of the, the you know the, the period where the industry sort of went into this decline, and you couldn't allocate. Uh, as much as you did to marketing but you know the marketing of the stations was the most fun and the brand building the brand and i mean I, I think about the campaigns we did for ens or for power or for lol or keishi or or fan uh, I, some of the best you know stuff we've ever done but uh, the industry's changed so much but yeah we love the idea of what are we
1: going to do to build a brand I remember, as you know, as a kid and young adult, could not get away the the power billboards and bus yeah. boards. And uh, you guys did such a phenomenal and and I always thought it was a really good humor uh, around it as well, yeah. uh, which is not
0: easy to do. Yeah, yeah, we've always been uh, it, we've always attracted great people. Diana, uh, Jason did the the stuff at Power, and uh, just just remarkable
1: stuff. So, talk to me about growing outside of radio and, uh, you acquired in, I think the late eighties and starting into the nineties, uh, Indianapolis monthly, um, you had 15 television stations and then I want to get more into the Mariners here in a second, but what made you decide to move out of, uh, not move, well, I guess expand beyond radio.
0: Well, the magazine was interesting. The magazine was sort of the city magazine of Indianapolis. And I have a cousin, dear friend who was the editor in chief, uh, and we've been friends for life. And she called me one day and said, okay, I can't avoid it anymore. i got to do a cover story on you. And, you know, she was a dear friend, and, and we did this story, and it turns out that the publisher um, wanted – the family said, you know, we don't want own this anymore. And so one thing led to another, and we bought it. And they were very good, Debbie, and, and we brought in people – around her for sales, you know, Jack Marcella, who had worked with us, you know, at at NTS and went to WIBC and, and they were good at it. And then later we bought Atlanta and then we got a chance to buy Texas Monthly in Los Angeles. And we, you know, again, we just had great people. They always won every award and the business was good. Um, And as far as TV, we really got into TV after the deregulation act of 96. We looked at radio values and we said, the math doesn't work. Um, you had a period where for 20 years, everything was eight times cash flow, nine times cash flow, 10 times cash flow. And now stuff was 22 times cash flow. Jeez. And, and we looked at it and, the, and that was when Wall Street discovered the industry. And if you remember Lowry and Mel and a few other companies, just you, your stock was trading at 10 and you buy an asset at nine and it would be accretive. And then the next year, your stock was trading at 12. You would buy something at 11. And it kept going up, and every time they buy something for a little less than their cash flow, it was accretive. And all of a sudden, people are trading at 22 times cash flow and buying things at 21 times. And it just – we we looked at it and said, this doesn't work. So we we said, look, Greg Nathanson was on my board, uh, had been a roommate in college. Greg was at that time president of Fox Entertainment. Um, and had run the Tribune stations, uh, and we both agreed that TV, our skills were transferable to TV, but also that we thought television had to get a second revenue stream. But if you, if you study the industry, you knew that the law changed in 1992, uh, allowing local stations to get paid by the cable operators, but through really the brilliance of John Maloney, he had prevented it. Uh, And we said, look, these guys have to get a second revenue stream. In those days, I think in 90, in 98, when we bought our first TV station, um, we we said, look, 65 percent of everything that's watched on the local cable system is, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC and Fox. So and yet they get zero dollars. So we 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 said, let's go that way and let's not chase values in radio that don't make any sense. And did you buy television
1: in markets that accompanied your, your radio assets or? No,
0: we, you know, other than Terre Haute, where we bought the, the company and we got the stations, we, we thought there was some synergy, but we thought, you know, number one, our radio assets are mostly in the largest markets in the country. So you're not going to go to CBS and say, okay, we'll take channel two in New York because we have hot 97. Um, so we, we just said, let's just find things that make sense. And mostly, our our largest markets were Portland, Oregon, and Orlando. Back to you know leadership. Did
1: you find that the human nature, um, the employees that you worked with in both magazine and in the television world, were similar to radio, or were there differences?
0: There were there were differences. Uh, And and offline, you can ask Rick Cummings about uh, one of the comedy bits he did did in a manager's meeting that the radio people thought was funny, and the magazine people thought was disgraceful but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) there were different sensibilities um but generally the culture was the culture um you know and you know
1: when you were running now in in the companies obviously changed forms uh several times but did you still find yourself more
0: focused on the radio side or how would you divide your time up you know it's funny when i first started i did everything i picked every record i typed the cart labels i wrote the sales copy, I wrote the TV commercials. Uh, I've always, since the early days, learned to delegate and, and let my people um, do their jobs. I, I sort of said, I'm sort of like a goalie. Uh, I sit in my office and people shoot the puck at me all day and some I stop and some get by me and some hit me right in the face, but it's just sort of dealing with whatever, you know, the you know the, sort of the broadest vision of the company is at any given time. That's a great analogy. Tell me a little bit about
1: going public um, and the excitement around that. Well, it,
0: you, you know, it's funny. Wall Street discovered this industry. Um, it discovered it in really the early 90s. Lowry was the first to go public, and I think he would tell you that in the first couple of years he was public, nobody cared, nobody loved it. Um, as, as we got toward 96, you could see a lot more of Wall Street coming into the business. We went public in 94. Um, and what you found was, you know, capital found the radio industry and the TV industry. Um, the rules changed. That was, you know, at first it was 777. 7, 7. Then I think in the early 80s, it changed 1212 12 and 12. Then we got duopolies in radio, which made it more attractive. And before the communi- telecommunications act of 96, and right after it, there was just a glut of capital. and you know, there's nothing as good as being a public company when your industry and your company's rising because you know you, you can. It, it's easier to borrow money. It's easier to raise money through stock sales. Uh, you can use your currency to buy things. Uh, it's the greatest motivator for your people. You know, nothing's better than see your people get options that you know they cash in and they send their kids to college or they you know buy themselves a home. And so it's just when when you're when your industry is growing and your stock is growing, uh, it's it's wonderful. When it goes the other way, it's awful, absolutely awful. And I've and I've lived all sides of it. I've lived a company. I think we went public in 1994 at 15.50 a share. It went all the way and 2,124 dollars a share. And then split two for one. Uh, and then when, when the bottom fell out in 2009, I think the stock was like 30 cents a share. Um, and, and really, in the last decade, the American radio industry's uh, equity values have been nothing.
1: And it surprises me because you still look at an industry that cash flows incredibly well yeah. and is very profitable. Um, but I, you know, I, I do agree that some valuations that you see tech companies, or you look at a company like Tesla that's valued, you know, several times more than the Ford motor company, it doesn't seem logical on, you know,
0: on on a lot of levels. Um, well, when you look at, for example, I mean, streaming has attracted zillions of dollars of capital. So you look at Spotify with a market cap of like $30 billion and they've never made money, um, you know, I got in trouble once at a conference and I said, we made more. Somebody asked about Pandora. I said, we love those guys, but I made more money at Amos before breakfast today than they made in 12 years.
1: I um, remember I was there. It was at uh, Radio Inc. Forecast. That I was a great comment.
0: Yeah, but but I mean, that's, you know, that's the the, the challenge. You know, Wall Street loves what Wall Street loves and capital flows where capital wants to flow. And there's just been an absolute appalling a flight of capital away from traditional radio in the last really decade
1: was your father alive to see you go public
0: yes uh, although he died a few years later but my dad saw the mariners and saw sort of the skyrocket and uh um somebody i'll never forget we were at spring training one day and somebody said uh are you really are you proud of your son you know and he said well of course i'm proud he said you know think about it you know I'm here. He said, Gene Autry's father would be 130 years old today. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I know it sounds like a great line. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think we were playing the Angels that day. And he said, well, of course I'm proud my son's here and I'm here to watch him. And um, But yeah, well, you know, he was, but my my dad passed away uh, many years ago. As a matter of fact, Monday will be his 100th birthday. Oh my um, gosh. That would have been 100, but he died, you know, in the, in '96. Uh, my mom passed away uh, six years ago, so she lived, you know, quite a bit longer. But uh, uh, That's got to be in, incredibly special for them to be, be able to have witnessed
1: that and to see that type of success. And, yeah, I think, you know, uh, family important to you, and it is to me as well. And I'm always proud to share uh, things about the business with uh, with my parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, walk me through the Mariners. How did, uh, that happen? And, uh, what made you decide to do it? I mean, i you're the only person I've ever spoken to in my life that's owned a major league baseball team. So
0: well, <laughs> and there, and I forget the Mar- it's funny. We, we, we love turnarounds. I mean, if you look at us in the eighties, it was buy something, fix it up and make it better. And in those days, you could only buy one FM in a market. And by, by the late eighties, we had New York, LA, Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, Washington, Houston, uh, Indianapolis, Minneapolis. So, so we had, there there wasn't much more we could do. And I think we always said, you know, once you're in New York, you're really not dying to buy in Kokomo. Uh, (laughs) And we were, we had done fan and we'd gotten very close to the people with the Mets because we bought, we bought fan from the Doubleday family, which owned the Mets and we carried them. And I think, you know, Somebody, you know, in baseball said, you guys are turnaround guys. We really need somebody to turn around the Mariners. It's a mess. And it was owned by a a brilliant guy, George Ardrose, who was a very, very successful real estate guy. But, you know, George didn't want to spend money. And he was a sort of a Southern California conservative real estate guy, which is sort of the antithesis of what people in Seattle like. Um, and I, and I had been to Seattle as a kid and just thought it was the coolest place ever. And, you know, I think in those days, I think we just said, this is, this is what we do. It's a fixer upper. And we, people think, well, it's an ego trip. We, we have never bought a business, uh, where we said we have to own it. It was, we loved, I was a student of the economics of baseball. Uh, I always thought that the regionalization of cable was going to be a big deal. Uh, and that was really, you know, I, my friend says, your problem is you see stuff too early. Um, and, and we did. I mean, in that case. And I think what we didn't understand is it had been such an unloved franchise that we made great strides, just like NTS. I mean, the things we did in Seattle were just wonderful. But we just, we could never get a cable deal and the corporate community and the, and the government was just kind of indifferent. And I've always said, yeah, we just didn't have the money to lose $15 million a year owning the Mariners. Um, and especially when the radio business got worse. And so we, and when we bought it, we said, look, if we can't move the needle, you know, we'll put it up for sale and the city has a right to buy it. And, uh, uh, I think, uh, I always say I became a pariah there because they thought nobody in their right mind is going to buy this team and Smolian's going to move it to Tampa. Um, but um, but I, I'm so proud of the stuff we did. I mean, we invented stuff that now is commonplace in ballparks. But, you know, we were in, going into the ninth inning. We had, uh, you know, John Belushi saying, was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? And we did movie clips. I'll never forget Gary Kasich, who was the president of the team and, and is it, my another dearest, dearest friend, like Cummings, came into the office one day and said, I don't think we really have the right to take clips from famous movies. <laughs> one of the, but it was so novel. It was such a novel idea that nobody knew. So we just took funny clips from movies, you know, like the speech at the end of Hoosiers, and we had some Mr. Ed clips. That's great. And one of the studios called and said, yeah, you can't do that. And we said, well, why not? And he said, well, we haven't granted you permission. But it was novel. It was like, well, nobody ever tried that at a ballpark. We did all sorts of crazy stuff. We had singles nights. Um, we had, you know, where we would have one girl and three bachelors, and there was always you know, two normal looking bachelors and one guy was 400 pounds and the fans voted the 400. The girl always got the 400 pound guy, but it was just, it was just fun, crazy stuff. Uh, what a, what a blast. Now, was, did,
1: did you own the team
0: when Ken, Ken Griffey Jr. Was playing there? Oh yeah. I love Kenny. Kenny would come in. Uh, Gary and I were like his big brothers in, in, in Seattle, we would we we were one of the few teams that where our offices were about two blocks away. So every night we had a game, we'd walk over before the game. and there was a little area behind home plate where the, the you know the guy who ran the radar gun would be, right, And it was a little seating area. And we would always go down there before the game and then for the first few innings because then we'd have to go up to the owner's box and entertain politicians and clients and whatever, but we thought at least we'll start the game. We'll have a couple cheeseburgers and we'll shoot the breeze. And Kenny would come in every night and shoot the breeze with us. And I, I loved him. Um, and then, we you know, the next year we brought his dad into play um, and, you know, and they played together. And yeah, uh, I've always thought, I'm biased. I, I was a Willie Mays fan as a kid, sure. but I've always thought that Kenny would have been the best player ever if he hadn't had injuries at the end of his career.
1: Yeah, he was he was amazing.
0: Um, um, what a, a great time
1: for uh, for uh, baseball too. You know, you had the Bash Brothers and yeah, uh, just an yeah. ex- exciting era. And I mean, geez, so you're running stations, yeah. amazing brands throughout uh, almost every major market. Yeah. Uh, you've got television, you've got the Mariners, you've got uh, uh, magazines. How at that point in your career, or in plus Wall Street and, yeah. and so forth, are you able to balance all this
0: and uh, and make it work. Well, they were all at different times. We we didn't get into TV till '98. We had sold the Mariners by '92, um, so it was all I don't know. You you just sort of do what you do, and we always attracted great people. Our magazine people were great. Our TV people were great. Um, and our you know and and I I thought I, I've always been proud. I think I'm prouder of the things that didn't work. I thought the Mariners' management was terrific. Um, when we sold the team, Gary said what could we have done different? I said, I think this is the best management you'll ever do, but you're just in a place where the math is just against you. Yeah. And that's sure. a much longer story than we have. For,
1: for yeah. To, to, to be able to say you were Ken Griffey Jr.'s boss and David Letterman's boss is pretty yeah. damn cool. And yeah. Rick Cummings boss, of course. <laughs> um Tell me about uh, joining a White House or being invited to uh, be on a White House delegation that helped negotiate uh, an agreement between Israel and uh, the Palestine liberation.
0: Well, I had actually met uh, President Clinton when he was governor. We had actually was in Seattle and we had the National Governors Conference and we had all the governors at the ballpark one night. And my friend Evan who governor of Indiana, was there and he had threw out the first pitch. and, And a friend of mine said, look, you, we want you to meet Bill Clinton for breakfast. So I met him for breakfast a Saturday morning, went to his hotel uh, and was just fascinated. fascinating. Well, the most brilliant, engaging human being I've ever met. I mean, he is really a brilliant guy. Um, and so I helped him. I did a fundraiser for him in Indianapolis. Uh, I think I remember asking him, it was 91, uh, what are you doing running for president? Pre- I mean, President Bush has like a 70% approval rating. And he said, yeah, you never know. And a year later, he was elected president of the United States. And so when he got elected, they said, "What well, would you like to do something? I said, no, my mission after baseball was just to rebuild Emmis. Emmis had had trouble. Um, and then they called a few months after he was you know, inaugurated and said, look, we got a part-time thing. Um, you could be a U.S. ambassador uh, in charge of the U.S. delegation to the International Telecommunications Union, um it the conference itself is six and a half weeks it'll be in Kyoto next year to prepare we want to send you on four or five bilateral meetings around the world um but you can still keep your day job um and I talked to my kids at the time and they thought it would be cool and uh and I accepted it I had a wonderful delegation of about 50 people in my delegation oh my gosh this is a huge operation yeah, it was yeah, and and we met you know regularly in Washington before I we went to Kyoto, and it, it, if you know the ITU, which I didn't know anything about, I always said they they picked the one person on the planet who knew less about intertel, inter, uh, international telecommunications, processes, <laughs> than me. Uh, But but all of our delegation were people who had worked in the State Department and for the major phone companies and the satellite companies and uh, Microsoft and, you know, great technical wizards. And my job was to sort of steer our, you know, position on certain things. And it it was wonderful. And um, um, during about midway through the conference, one of the Arab states came to us and said, look, uh, and, and you have to, you have to remember the time, Chachi, this was 1994. This is about six months after Oslo. And if you remember that long ago, the Oslo Accords really looked like it was going to be the start of a lasting peace between Israel and the PLO. And it's I frightening am. how far back we've fallen since then. But the idea was some of the Arab states wanted to, to get telecommunications infrastructure to the PLO because they were going to getting ready to build this new nation. Um, and they said, in exchange for that, we will, we will allow um, recognition of Israel, which had never happened in the UN system, whatever. Jeez. And, uh, and so they came to me and I ended up, you know, doing the negotiating. I had State Department people, but for some reason, I ended up meeting with everybody and you would meet with, uh, you know, with PLO and then you meet with some Arab states, some Arab states would meet with other Arab states, some would meet with the PLO. And then there was Israel. And it was just it, you shuttle back and forth. And it was one of the more gratifying things I've ever done. And it really taught me a lot. Uh, I'm, it's pretty well known I'm Jewish. Uh, I'm sure that everybody on all sides knew I was Jewish. I know the Israelis did. I'm pretty sure the, the, the Arab states did. But it, it taught me to bend over backwards to be to understand. And, and I really learned more about the Palestinians than I could have ever learned. Um, and it was a wonderful, just incredibly rewarding experience.
1: What an amazing assignment. You're an, an actual ambassador.
0: I think, I think if the, the, the president of the United States and the people in the State Department watched and said, oh, my God, we're going to send Smalley in to do this, they would have gone, holy shit, we can't do that. Uh, <laughs> but it just happened. I was on duty, and, uh, and it was wonderful. It really was.
1: And then you would report back to
0: President Clinton on progress? I mean, not really. You'd report it back through channels. But, uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, the, I'll, I'll tell you one funny story, which you'll appreciate. Yeah, please. Uh, um, this was, if you remember, you probably don't remember, but in, in the fall of 1994, Saddam Hussein amassed troops on the border with Kuwait. Now, if you remember '91 with the Gulf War, sure. uh, President Bush had repelled them, and so I get up in the morning and I'm watching the president give a press conference, saying the United States will defend Kuwait. This will not stand, et cetera, et cetera. So I go down to breakfast and there's the woman who is a Kuwaiti ambassador. And she comes up to me and says, M- Mr. Ambassador, I need to understand my family's in Kuwait. I need to know that your country will support us. And I, of course, have just watched CNN. right? And I said, well, I, you have our word. The United States will stand behind the Ku- Kuwait. And one of my friends, you know, in the delegation said, you know, as she walked away and was oh, my God! She, I think this woman thought, well, Ambassador Smiley has been on the phone with President Clinton all night. You, know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you were more up to speed than CNN.
0: Yeah, you know, no, and one of the great lines of all time, one of my friends in the delegation said, thank God you were watching CNN this morning instead of the cartoon network, which you're normally watching. <laughs> you that that was one of the great, one of the great lines.
1: Oh my God. That's hilarious. Yeah. And that what an amazing assignment. And yeah. thank you uh, f- for your service. I could talk, uh, talk to you about the, just this portion of your career uh, for, for hours, but we, we obviously don't have the time, but, um, question in regards to negotiation and back to your, uh, you've made more money, uh, before breakfast than Pandora ever has. You've negotiated more deals before breakfast than I probably ever have. What is the difference between negotiating the purchase or sell of a radio station versus trying to negotiate amongst countries?
0: Well, I think you always, I I've always started with saying, what is the most important thing to the other side? understand in any negotiation what is important to them and then work from there. Um, in, in most cases you can accommodate the other side's interest and and maximize your own interest. Now there's always going to be have to be give and take but I always try to see any negotiation from the other person's side uh, because I got to understand what's important to them. I know it's important to me you know I mean it's all it's always clear I know it's important to me, but I will always try to understand the other person and see if I can craft something that allows them to maximize their interest in a way that also allows me to maximize mine. Great advice. I've got uh, two more uh, two more questions for you. Right. Um,
1: uh, about a year and a half ago, you uh, were quoted in saying that it's becoming increasingly difficult to compete without scale. Yeah. And you made the decision to sell off um, a lot of your prized your prized assets and, uh, businesses that you'd spent stations, a tremendous amount of your career and life, uh, doing a great job building.
0: Um, walk me through that decision and just the emotions. I, I think we learned a long time ago, I think. And I think perversely the next radio experience taught us some things about the business that, that worried us. Uh, and you know, when you talk about a business that you've given your life to, it's hard to look at and say, boy, I just don't know. But we thought with our size and with some of the trends that we saw we just thought look if we want to go on and maybe create value we probably need to do it in other areas um and we said look we would you know we we think we think we're really good at this i i think our people are as good at radio as anybody but we said look you know if, if we don't drift out of this uh and we want another chapter for Emma, it's not going to happen unless we monetize what we have and allow us to go buy some other things um and it breaks my heart because nobody knows loves this business more than i do but we also you know if you if you look at at the at the numbers and i've been fooling around writing this book and you look at the history of ratings and revenues in the industry over the last 15 years it's yeah, you know, it's a frustrating thing. There's, it is evident
1: by your love and passion and storytelling about the industry, how much you love love it, and how well you you treat your your staff and in team members. Uh, absolutely incredible, and uh, something I try to live up to uh, every day uh, here. Um, but don't don't come close to uh, to you. Um, We'll talk about next. I actually didn't have it in my notes, but it it is something that I think you should be commended for because the passion and this dedication that we're hearing throughout this entire podcast is what you threw into Next Radio and talking about being ahead of your time. And I felt, and I'll put it out there, I felt the industry did not back you like they should have. And it was something that was badly needed and such a phenomenal idea and cause. And I want to thank you on behalf of the industry um, for everything that you did, because I know you poured millions of dollars into it and yeah. a tremendous amount of effort and had a phenomenal team working uh, so much to activate uh, those smart, uh, the
0: transmitters and the smartphones. Yeah. Well, it was, it was one of those things it, at the time, this just goes back a number of years ago, we had a, we used to have, I think nine CEOs in the industry would meet, um, the, the nine largest, I guess. And we were meeting in Katz's office in New York. And David Rear, before, this is before Gordon came in, David Rear walked into the meeting one day and said, look, um, if you go to phone stores in Asia and in Europe, you can put an FM radio in. And none of us had any idea. Showed us, explained it to us. And we all, a light went on. And we said, oh my gosh, we, we, we got to get behind this. You know, and he said, look, it's no secret that portability and radios declined precipitously. You know, nobody buys boom boxes anymore and nobody buys Walkman. Uh, and all of us said, this is great. Somebody in the room, I don't know who it was. If I, if I could figure it out, I would probably kill them, but that's another story. <laughs> um, somebody said, aren't you doing uh, a project with Nokia in Finland. And yeah, we were, we were working on a bid for a license in Finland, which we didn't get, but we partnered with Nokia. And they said, yeah. And, and they said, would you explore this? Cause Nokia at that time was, you know, this was before the iPhone. Sure. Uh, so I said, yeah. And I fell in love with the thing. I, the more I looked at it, I said, this is our answer. This is our answer for portability. This is our answer to be in the one place everybody's at fell in love with the thing. And then as time went on, the NAB a couple years later said, look, it's not enough to get these chips turned on. we got to build an ecosystem. And I think they probably went to you know Clear Channel and, and Intercom or CBS or I don't know how many people. But Brenner, Paul Brenner, said, we can do that. And so we said, all right, we'll build it. And that was the launch. It, 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 we had actually worked on a project with the industry with Apple for their iTunes store. Uh, and Paul had put together some things and said we could build this, and that's how Next Radio launched, and we all fell in love with it. And I believe I then, I believe now, that the, the biggest challenge the industry has is that you, you've really lost uh, a generation of people who, who just, you know, care about the medium, uh, and it's with them all the time. And, you know, we also knew that the applications worked in cars, And what we learned was that the car is really the the place where the industry's got to take its stand. Um, But I think we learned a lot. We did, uh, again, some incredible work. I think it was a a challenge. I think you had, obviously, iHeart never – it's just not their nature to play well with others. That's just who they are. Uh, And then I think you had an industry which I think – you know, I I used to joke, say, guys – I appreciate all the awards, but rather the awards, just pitch in and help with this thing. And I think some people did. Uh, and some people said, you know, not my problem. And we just finally said, we, you know, one of my board members said, do you realize that the entire research and development of the American radio industry is coming from us? And we finally said, this is silly. And we said, guys, either help fund it. The other thing we learned was because of the of the nature of the industry that really getting widespread portability was only going to happen if you change commercial inventory. Um, Paul Brenner walked into my office one day and said, when I look at listening patterns in Argentina and Brazil and, you know, Peru and Canada and you you see, you know, six, eight, nine minutes an hour, he said consumption changes as opposed to when people are running 15 minutes an hour. So said, you just drive them away. So we learned early on that the goal of really widespread listening in smartphones was going to be tough. Um, because they had streaming alternatives that they didn't hear the commercials. Right.
1: Well, man, it was a, a valiant, uh, effort yeah. and, uh, something I think the, uh, the ind- industry, uh, owes you deep gratitude, uh, for leading. You just made a very exciting, uh, a- acquisition, uh, a company called Lencore Acoustics. Yeah. Uh, help me understand, uh, what made you decide to do that and where, uh, what Lencore does.
0: Well, we said, look, when we sold some of our assets and we had cash in the bank, um, we said, look, let's find things that we think are growing, uh, that we think because of certain skill sets we have, we can make them grow more. Uh, we found Lencore. It is a business that does sound masking. Uh, or as Rick and Chase said one day, we spent our whole lives trying to get people to listen to stuff. And now we're trying to produce a product where they can't listen. Um <laughs> <laughs> but really, but it's for offices. It's also the next iteration is for hospitals and maybe even in, in universities. There's all sorts of restaurants, maybe, where you basically can, as people go to more open offices and with less acoustic material, uh, that you can deaden the sound. And we fell in love with it. It was a family business. It was sort of the leader in the space. But we said, boy, the, the best thing about our group is we're smart enough to know, know what we don't know. Uh, so we said, we don't know this, this, and this, but we had the people that did, but we said we could really help with some of the, of the sales and the sales training, uh, and the research and the marketing. Um, and we thought that it had the ability to grow, you know, very nicely now. So far, yeah.
1: Fascinating uh, company. I did a little bit of research and, uh, it's capabilities through technology can deaden the sound of a room and so we're so used to using um studio doors and windows and uh sound baffling and this literally does it through through sound itself i believe if i it's way over my head but i found it just amazing that this is yeah. even possible.
0: and it is and and it, and of course the the, the running joke around Emma's is that it is the world has gone to open offices um sure. And and I could we studied all we did all sorts of due diligence on this, but of course we said, leave it to us to buy a business when the pandemic creates a world where nobody goes back into an office again, and that would be Emerson. So. <laughs> but but no, we we think um, it, it's got some great applications, and it's got because of HIPAA laws, it's got some great applications in 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 medical. Uh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, so we're we're excited. It's just early. I mean, we we bought it and you know, a few weeks later, here comes the pandemic. And, uh, but it, it, it's actually held up pretty well.
1: My last question. And you shared with me, uh, a little bit earlier that you've started writing a book. Yes. Yeah. How did that come to be?
0: Well, I, as I've said, I have two grown children, um, and, and two grandchildren and now, and I have a 16 year old daughter, um, and my 16 year old daughter, my favorite 30 minutes a day, driving her to school every day for all these years. Um, for, you know, since she was like, you know, in, in kindergarten and awesome. You do that. Yeah. And it's, and we just talk about everything. And it's sort of dad's lessons. And if you talk to any one of my three kids, they'll tell you, dad's always, you know, here's what you learned. Here's what you learned. Here's what you learned. And my daughter has got this great quirky sense of humor said, "Dad, you got to write this down. Nobody, these stories are great. And so during the pandemic, you know, I was finding myself in my office uh, because my wife and my two golden doodles and my daughter weren't thrilled to have me home all the time. So <laughs> my office quiet. So I come down here, but I just started writing and wrote like 300 pages. And it was just what have I learned? What lessons have I learned? And I've had it was cathartic. I love doing it. I don't know what I'll do with it. Um, but I've got a couple of people who said, look, you got to publish this. And so, you know, we'll see it. Uh, but it was just I haven't titled it, but it would probably be what have we learned? I have a when I walk into a meeting I, you know I always go guys okay what have we learned what do we know today uh, so that it was just lessons I've learned in life through all these experiences and and I I have uh, there are crazy stories I've had a couple of people read it and uh, they said I, I laughed out loud and I never laugh out loud so who knows but it was cathartic
1: I'm thrilled that you are doing this project and I really hope that you uh, publish it because I I promise to to buy a copy I would just it, this is just a taste of this podcast of, I imagine what would be in, in the book and I could talk to you for hours. Uh, and so I, I will absolutely uh, not only
0: will I get one, but I
1: will make sure that the entire Benstown team has a copy.
0: Well, I have a strange feeling that there's ever, anybody's going to get a free autographed copy. If I, if I do publish it, it you would be at the top of the list. Jeff.
1: <laughs> I, I appreciate that, man. Jeff, Thank you so much uh, for your time today and sharing these stories. Just uh, been a pure pleasure. And again, Great. everything you've done for the industry, um, I have watched you my, uh, my whole career and have looked up to the, the way that you treat people, the way that you grow brands, um, your entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you've got guts uh, that I've got so much respect for, and it's just been a, an honor to uh, talk to you today.
0: Gotcha. You have made a lot of fans in in MS. I will tell you that. And I thank you too. And uh, this is fun. This is delightful doing this. Thank you, my friend.
1: Thanks.